Good evening. Welcome to Cross Points Midweek Fellowship. Uh, I would like to call your attention to our Facebook page, first of all. We have a member who will be moving soon, uh, and she needs help getting rid of some of her stuff. So uh, she's having a yard sale this Saturday from 1 to 7. I encourage all our members or people who just want to help out to go help her get rid of those items. So uh, there's that. And then uh, the scripture for tonight, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Pray with me. Father, you are holy and you are excellent. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the purification you're doing in us and for us. I pray that uh, you be with us as we listen to your word taught tonight. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. That's Stephen, the intern. If you don't know Stephen, you get to need to get to know Stephen. And Stephen is wearing a shirt with a hero of the faith on it, um, Jim Elliott. That is Jim Elliott's caricature on Stephen's faith. And if you don't know Jim Elliott, you should look him up on, on your Google machine, and it will tell you about this very faithful brother um, who uh, gave his life in Ecuador back in the 1950s for, to take the gospel to um, a headhunting tribe. And the story of what has happened in that tribe after Jim Elliott and several other men lost their lives there is quite remarkable and a testimony to the power of the gospel. Well, it's so good to see you guys. Um, I am really looking forward to these next six weeks. We're going to be looking at hard passages, hard sayings of the Bible. Tonight we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, open Hebrews chapter 6 and we're going to settle down on verses 4 through 8 and this really difficult passage that says that, um, that people who fall away are re-crucifying the Son of God, and it is impossible to restore them to repentance. So what does that mean? So we're going to look at that in a second. Um, and here's our plan for the next six weeks. Uh, myself and Will Hawk and Robert Ward are going to share the teaching duties these next six weeks. So next week, Will will be teaching on a difficult text. We've got about five or six floating out there, um, and we're not exactly sure what's going to be next week, unless you know, Will, what you're certain. If not, okay, so it'll probably be John 6, where Jesus says to eat my flesh and drink my blood, although that could change. And then each week successive, we're going to take a difficult passage and really just uh, beyond just looking, solving a passage problem, I think it'll help us just really engage the word and really in- encourage us how to, to just approach God's word. So with that, um, I am going to read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and we're going to dive right in. And if you don't have notes, um, there are some notes on the back table, and I think you will really be helped by having the outline of our notes, because that will guide your time. And um, if you don't have notes, raise your hand, and um, somebody will get them for you, maybe Springer. Okay, looks like everybody has notes. Okay, well, um, let me read Hebrews chapter 6, and uh, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, And have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Well, these are severe words, and what do they mean? So let me pray one more time, and then we'll dig into it. Lord, help us to understand these words that you have inspired through your writer to the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews to your people. 
I pray that we would um, rightly handle this word tonight, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us illumination, that this would be more than, um, that it wouldn't at all be this, that it would not be a kind of scriptural lab experiment where we're just sort of analyzing things, but may the Holy Spirit meet us where we are, convict us, spur us on, chasten us, encourage us, assure us, and maybe for some of us in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, lead us to true repentance for the first time. Lord, may we worship you rightly as a result of our time in your word, and do your will among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so just... Before we dive into the middle of Hebrews, just a very quick summary of the message of Hebrews. Hebrews is written to uh, Hebrew people who were very likely mostly once Jewish or practicing Jews or the children of practicing Hebrew Jewish Old Testament Christians. And they are under persecution in the Roman Empire at the time and they are considering maybe going back to their old way of life, going back to Judaism. And so a big part of what the, the concern of the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these people to stay in Christ, to stay, to continue on in their faith in Christ, to endure to the end despite persecution and despite maybe the pressure that they're feeling from some of their friends and family to go back to their old way of life, back to the Old Testament law. And they're being persecuted for this probably by um, people that they once knew and loved. And the writer is there to encourage them that Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. In fact, he's the fulfillment of all these things. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer is talking about uh, those that on just a sort of cursory reading seems like those that have fallen away from the faith. So if you look at Roman numeral one, I think that there are three main options. We, we need to figure this out before we can diagnose this problem and unpack the scripture. We need to figure out who the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And f- to answer that question, I think there are three main possibilities. One is that the writer of Hebrews has in mind in this passage Christians who are truly born again and are trusting in Christ and are saved and can lose their salvation. And in fact, some of them do is what it seems to be the sense here in this passage if you view the audience of Hebrews chapter 6 being Christians. So that's option number one. Option number two, uh, historical view number two, would be that that the uh, audience in view for the writer of Hebrews is unbelievers who seemed to be Christians, I made a grammatical mistake there, who seemed to be Christians, but finally proved themselves not to be genuine Christians, okay? And Paul kind of tipped our hand a little bit at the beginning. I think that's the dominant view. I think that's the biblical view, the right view. We'll get into why that is in a bit. And then a third view that I think has some merit as well, that I think actually is, is something we need to consider that I think does apply is that the writer is writing to a mixed audience, both to unbelievers and believers in the church. And the writer, from his perspective, does not know who the truly regenerate born-again Christians are amongst the people. And what he's, his main argument is saying that will finally reveal itself on the end, in the end by who endures to the end. And so he's writing to a mixed audience, and the warnings that he issues in Hebrews 6 and in other places in Hebrews serve as a means of preserving grace for genuine believers, and we'll talk about that and how that works out in a little bit. There's also a fourth view that is not nearly as popular popular and just doesn't seem to have much biblical merit, just in case you're wondering, um, and that is the view that the writer is writing to Christians, and what's being lost here is not their salvation, but their heavenly reward. Um, And I don't think that makes much sense and it doesn't get much written about it. So those are the three options. Christians who can lose their salvation, um, that's option number one. Option number two is that no, the writer's writing to unbelievers who seemed to be Christians, gave outward appearance of being Christians, but finally proved themselves not to be genuine Christians because they fell away, or that he's writing to a mixed audience and the warning is something that real Christians need to heed because it's God's means of grace for keeping them in the true faith. So, 
I think that the answer is that the writer is right. I think the answer is number two, but I think that also three is something that we need to consider as well because I think there is a little bit of that in this text as well. But Roman number two there, let's critique the view Uh, Number one, that Christians can lose their salvation. And there's going to be three things that we're going to look at here. And I want to work through them pretty quickly, give you some pastoral reflections. And then I want to open it up to questions because I know that many of you may may be thinking really deeply about this verse over the years and and maybe have want to bring up something that I haven't um, necessarily thought of. And I want to be able to address that. So look again at the words in verses four and five. And let's just read them again slowly. So he says, for it is impossible... In the case of those who are talking about a group of people, and I've kind of broken this scripture down on your sheet there to just help you visually see it and digest it a little bit easier. We're talking about those, a group of people. Okay, how does he describe these group of people? He says a few phrases there. They have once been enlightened. What does enlightened mean? They have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what does that mean, to taste the heavenly gift? They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's another qualifying phrase of describing this group of people. And they've tasted, very similar to the uh, previous line above, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So there's three descriptive words there about this group of people and their relationship, whatever it is, with the Lord. They've been enlightened They have tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the word of God, similar phrases, and they've shared in the Holy Spirit. And if we go down to verse 6, he jumps ahead and says, okay, they've fallen away. But at the end of that little uh, line there at the beginning of chapter 6, I mean, verse 6, he says that it would be impossible to restore them to repentance, implying that they've done something that the writer of Hebrews is calling repentance, okay? So let's just, again, just think about these words of description that the writer of Hebrews is using to identify this group of people who we're concerned with. Who are they? They are enlightened. They've tasted something of the Lord. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. And to some degree, whatever it means in this context, they have repented. Okay, so what are the possible meanings of those words? And I think this is the first critique of this particular view. On the surface, can't we understand that that seems like, very likely, it could be, and maybe even is, describing a a Christian. Like this is somebody who has has done these things. This is a description of what it means to be in the Christian life. Well, um, not necessarily. And let me, let's kind of work through those words. So that first word there in italics, they're enlightened. This Greek word that really just literally means the shining of light on. So in John chapter 1 verse 9, it speaks about Jesus coming into the world. And Jesus is the light of all men. Now in that context, clearly that word is being used not in a saving way. So When Jesus in John 1 is called the light or the enlightenment of the whole world, clearly that isn't meant to say that Jesus is, everybody is saved just because Jesus comes into the world. So as Wayne Grudem says in uh, one of his chapter, in a chapter that he contributed to this book called Still Sovereign, I really recommend it. It's pretty technical and it's heavy reading, but if you really want to dig into some of the issues surrounding eternal security and Um, all sorts of things surrounding salvation. This is an excellent book, Still Sovereign, edited by some faithful teachers and preachers and theologians um, and written contributions by all of them. In that chapter that Grudem contributes to that book on the perseverance of the saints, he notes that this Greek word for enlightenment, which I have in parentheses there, is not a technical term that means hear and believe the gospel or come to saving faith. It literally means you're just kind of in the room when the light is there. So they're participants in the common grace that the blessing of the light of Christ brings to all humanity is another possible way of reading that text. Tasted, another word that might, you might think, well, he's, he's a Christian if he's tasted the heavenly gift. 
And again, this word has a broader range of meaning. Grudem defines it as mere tasting, or or describes it, or qualifies it by saying that mere tasting does not mean that a person has made something their own. So again, I want you to think of this idea. I want you to think of grace. I think this is really important. You need to think of grace in categories. And what I mean by that, in one sense, God gives grace to others all people. The the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And this is a historic doctrine called common grace. In other words, God, just by causing the sun to uh, come up in the morning and to go down at night and to cause our little ball of dirt that we are spinning around in the universe to actually stay on its axis and not spin out of control is common grace. The fact that God causes unregenerate, wicked people to come up with wonderful inventions that bless all of humanity, or maybe even unbelieving doctors to create some wonderful cure that is a blessing to to all of humanity. This is grace that comes from God, and it is in this category of common grace. It's because God is good to all creation, and it's, it's blessed. But that is to be distinguished from specific saving grace that God gives a person when that person is saved. Did you understand the distinction there? And so these ideas of enlightened and shared uh, all can have a sort of specific meaning to them, or they can have a, a meaning that, hey, I am, I am receiving the benefits of fits of these things just because I'm kind of around what is going on as God is, is blessing in that moment. And I think that tasted has that possible meaning as well. Shared, another sense in which we can view that word is in the common grace sort of way. So Grudem defines this or qualifies this as it means to be associated in some way with the work of the Holy Spirit and to share in some of the benefits that the Holy Spirit gives. And so somebody, for example, that um, is not necessarily a Christian, but receives uh, care from missionaries or is part of some food drive of a church or is part of some you know, medical clinic that a church pit puts on or just a few tiny little examples of how we can say that that person shared in the blessing of God's grace in and through his people in that situation. But it wouldn't necessarily, obviously we would not think that that means that that person, just because they've received benefit from the people of God or being around the people of God, means that they are necessarily Christians yet. And then this is an interesting one. This word here, and I think this is the one that we need to think most deeply about because we associate the word repentance with salvation. And here in Hebrews 6, 6, the writer says that these people have already been, or at least he implies that they've repented because they would have to be restored again to repentance. Do you see kind of the, the, uh, the, 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 the situation there that we have to deal with? Well, not all repentance in the Bible is necessarily spoken of as saving type of repentance. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 3 that Judas repented after he betrayed Jesus, but he, uh, he, he was not re- restored again unto salvation. He didn't repent in a saving sort of way. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 um, speaks about, it contrasts worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And the words are words for repentance there in the original language. So kind of like a worldly grief and that, does, that produces death and a godly sorrow, just true repentance, that produces life. And then, I don't have it listed here, but in Hebrews, I think it's in Hebrews chapter 11 or 12, or somebody can correct me, where it's speaking about Esau's repentance and how he tried to repent. He couldn't repent because he was so far gone, and so he repented, but not unto salvation. So there is this sense in the Bible that repentance is a general term in some cases that is not necessarily repentance that is coupled with saving faith. And so on further examination, 
when we look at these words, they do not necessarily bind us to think that it's speaking of somebody that is truly a Christian. So um, I, I think that there is leeway for this. So that's, that's critique number one. And I think then the, the, but the stronger arguments are, are the second and third one. So flip the page on the back and we'll, we'll, um, we'll get into the second argument. And I think this is, is, it really gets to the heart of what's going on here in this text. We see a real parallel between the text in Hebrews chapter 6 and Mark chapter 4 verses 13 through 20 where Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower, but I think it's better called the parable of the four types of soil. So let me read to you from Mark chapter 4 verses 13 through 20. He, He offers this parable to them about this farmer who goes out and scatters seed and it falls on four different types of soil. And then he interprets it for them in, in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others, verse 18, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those, verse 20, that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and six hundred and, and a hundred sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Okay, so Jesus speaks about four types of soil. There's soil that falls on the path, all right? So let's just kind of visually write this out so that we can see it. Mark four. Four types of soil. One is this path, and it gets snatched away, right? The second type of soil is rocky. And what does he say about this type of soil? Verse 16, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, in a sense they're sharing, they're being enlightened. Think about the language back in Hebrews chapter 6. They're being enlightened, they're hearing the word, And it seems like immediately they receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall fall away. Okay, so there's rocky ground. It doesn't take root. The third type of soil falls amongst the thorns. What does it say about the thorns? They are those who hear the word again. They're sharing in some sense, enlightened. They're tasting the goodness of God. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And then the fourth type of soil is the good soil. Okay? So let's then go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and let's look at verses 7 and 8. Okay? We'll read that again. So in verses 4 through 6, the writer of Hebrews has talked about these people who have been enlightened, they've tasted, they've shared, they have in some sense repented, but they've fallen away. And here's what's interesting. Here's the connection between Mark 4 and Hebrews chapter 6. There's another analogy of soil. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So you've got rain and you've got soil. And you've got one type of soil here. And that soil is useful and it's good. And then he goes on in verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless 
and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the second type of soil there is useless. It's, it's not good, okay? So you have two types of soil in Hebrews 6. I would argue, and I want you to see this connection, I would argue that in Mark chapter 4, you actually just have two types of soil as well. But in soils 1 through 3, Jesus is just describing varying differences in what reactions unbelievers will have at times to the word of God and the gospel. So in one, you've got this path, Satan comes immediately, snatches away. These are people who just completely reject the gospel, whatever, whatever. You've got the rocky path here. You've got people who, you know, hey man, this seems to be like something beneficial to me. Maybe my wife left me or something terrible happened to me. So I need to go get my life squared away. And they come, but then tribulation comes, hardship comes. And we find out that soil number two never really took root. It just had an outward appearance probably because of some maybe even unwittingly selfish motivation just to make my life better, it never took root. And I would argue that what's going on in soil number two is it never truly was a Christian. It just appeared to be a Christian for a while. And I think all of us have probably encountered people like this. And in a different variation of the same problem is the soil number three, the thorns that Boy, you know, we probably have all had people like this in our lives that just seem to be on fire for Jesus. And then, you know, yeah, but now something else a little bit more exciting and interesting comes along. When you start getting into the real discipleship call on your life that Jesus has, they just kind of float away, never to be heard from again, because the cares of this world choke them out. And I think all three, there's only, there's, there's soil that's not good, and the only one that is truly born again, God's people, regenerated, is this fourth type of soil. So these three types of soils are just more elaborate description of the second type of soil that the writer of Hebrews mentions in verse 7. And so I think what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6 is that the writer is primarily addressing people who seem to act like Christians for a while. And friends, we've had people like that even come to this church that have seemed to act like Christians for a while and walk away from the faith and reject it. People that 10 years ago, I would have been certain, from my perspective, were trusting in Jesus, but now are rejecting God. And those type of people are out. And I think that's what Hebrews 6 is addressing. And the thing is, friends, is we don't necessarily know who those people are. And the purpose of Hebrews chapter 6 is to warn us not to be those types of people. And this is where I think think that one of the great purposes of Hebrews is we cannot... We cannot, as Christians today who are assured or certain or relatively confident in our salvation, look at Hebrews chapter 6 and say, ah, well, you know, that's for the people that soils 1, 2, and 3 and, you know, that fall away. That's not me. I think that although the writer of Hebrews is addressing people who are not truly believers, I think that we can't just reject that scripture and say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. I think a secondary purpose of that scripture is that God would use it to warn us, to preserve us, so that if we ever get close to the edge, this could be me, even though God in his grace will never lose any of his people. A famous um, uh, author named Lorraine Bootner, he's not a woman, he's a man, even though his name is Lorraine, kind of like a boy named Sue, um, the Johnny Cash song. He wrote in famously of this illustration where um, Hebrews 6 is used by by God as a means of preserving grace. And the analogy he gave is that um, if imagine if you were to build a house right on a busy highway. 
and you had children, and you were a good father, and you're sitting out on the porch watching your children play, and you say to your children, if you run out into that street, you will surely die. And you sit on the porch, and you watch your children play. And your children, because they're children, sometimes forget what you've said to them. And they get close to the edge, and you, you yell out to them, Get away from the street! And the means by which you are keeping them actually safe, that you are ensuring that they will be safe, is you yelling out to them, Hey! Get away from the road. And the way, the means by which you are going to guarantee that they do not go out on the road is by you yelling at them and them having to hear you and respond to your warning and heed it so that they don't go out on the road. And you are such a good father that even if your kids did get so far because of their stupidity, because children can be dense. <laughs> you would jump up off the porch and run out before they got onto the street, snatch them by the scruff of their neck, kick them in the rear, put them back in the middle of the yard and say, I told you don't go out on that street. And what's going on in Hebrews 6 is not just the writer addressing unbelievers, this category of people who, no, that could never be us. But that the Holy Spirit also intends for this to be used in the life of a Christian who needs the warning of God. And I think that that is what mixes into uh, view number three there. And so I think that the, the answer is primarily two. That it's unbelievers is who he has in mind here. But in God's kindness, he uses this as a means to preserve his people. All right, let me just pause there and see if there are any questions before we get into the, um, just real quick on just kind of what I've said up to this point. And I may, just, um, I may just punt on the question to the end. Any questions? Questions, questions. We got one over here. Stephen, the intern's coming your way. I, I grew up in a church that I can't see about- that. Is that Joe? Yeah. Okay, hey, I can't see that. That talked part. about backsliding. Yes. And so, I don't know what, is there a difference? I don't get yeah. where you say like there's a backslider or there's somebody who maybe was never even a Christian. Yeah. So, that's a great question, Joe. Um, I think we need to define the terms, right? Um, in one sense, uh, James 3, 2 says that we all stumble in many ways. So, like, we all sort of backslide. <laughs> Like, but I, know, I think when we use the word backslide, I think we're thinking of something more drastic, right? So um, I, I, let me give you, a, let me draw a graph here, okay? This is, um, this is time, and this is maturity. We are dead in our sins. We're dead. Uh, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. It cannot please God. It cannot. It's dead. This is the state before salvation. At some point, God opens the minds and eyes of his people. He causes dead Lazarus to wake up and get up from the grave. He gives us a new heart by which we can believe. And it is the moment of salvation. Okay? This is salvation right here. But, as John Owen said, we are not, thank God I'm not who I used to be. Um, I messed up the quote. Logan, where are you? But thank, thank God I'm not who I was, but I'm not who I will be. In other words, he's, <laughs> I butchered it. Never mind. Forget the last 10 seconds. <laughs> the point of his quote is saying that who we start off, how we start off often in Christ is not, we are, we are not, we will ultimately become more and more like Jesus throughout the rest of our life. It's sanctification, Right? So even though in one sense Ephesians 2 says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, even though Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, I know that's really small, says that by a single offering, meaning his work on the cross, he has perfected, past tense, glorified, those who are being sanctified, 
Do you see the tension in that verse? You are perfect in Christ at your conversion, justification, adoption. Romans 8 speaks of your status before God as past tense glorified. Boom, that's where we are. But yet in another sense, the Bible also speaks of our sanctification as progressive, as needing to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so salvation is kind of like a, like a stock curve on Wall Street of a, of a trending stock, this Lord willing trending upwards, right? But along the way, even though this is progressive sanctification as I'm becoming more and more like Jesus through my life, and at some point I die and then I am glorified. Then there is no more sin. I'm with Jesus. I am purged of sin and all of its effects. Along the way, Joe, there are all sorts of bumps and bruises for the Christian, are there not? James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. So if you want to call some of these downturns backsliding, um, I I don't like that phrase because I think it's unhelpful. Because I think most people, when they think of backsliding, they think of it in the context of somebody who's just either lost their salvation, which I don't think is possible, or it, it, I think it, it, it kind of creates this sort of cheap grace that I can just backslide and kind of do what I want to do and then come back to the Lord, you know, when I want to get serious about stuff, you know? Like, I knew Jesus in high school, but then I went and did what I wanted to do in college and sowed my wild oats, and now I came back to the Lord. Well, no, you probably didn't know the Lord when you were in high school, and now you're actually truly saved for the first time. And so I don't want to give ourselves this category of backsliding as if it is a, one of the options on the Christian buffet of things we can choose for, for, uh, 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 from until we decide to get serious with the Lord. So um, that's what I think about kind of that phrase. And so when people use that phrase to me, I think that they're probably either referring to Christians that can lose their salvation, which I think is unbiblical, or they're referring to just one of these great dips that happens in the life of a believer at times. And we're going to talk about how we need to even heed, um, how we need to be warned against that. Does that kind of answer your question a little bit? Does that help? Okay. <laughs> Follow up if, 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 yeah. Okay. We can talk more about it one-on-one. Any other question? Paul, Brad. Paul, Paul Fincher. Robert told me to keep it quick. What's that about? Did you have a meeting? So um, my que- I do have a question, but just okay. something on Joe real quick. Just I, I grew up in a church that was similar, and I think backsliding meant that you were not, if you got hit by a bus that night, that you were away from the Lord. The problem is, is that Hebrews chapter 6 doesn't allow for me to rededicate my life and become yeah. saved again. If you yeah. read Hebrews chapter 6 at face value with that kind of perspective, then the person who has lost their salvation, if, again, option one is the truth here, which we don't think it is, then really that person can't be brought back to repentance. So that's, that's an even more dire kind of view than, than just saying that the person had never been truly regenerate to begin with. Yeah. My question, though, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, mm-hmm. Paul's talking about church discipline. Mm-hmm. He's talking about putting this man out um, who has had this illicit affair with his stepmom. Mm-hmm. And Paul makes this... Um, you're familiar with the verse, but this, ver- this, this statement where he says that uh, you're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So I, I guess where, where does that sort of fit into this yep. context? Um, that's a great question, and it's so good that I actually have it as a, a, a pastoral reflection. I was going to get to that in number three there about the necessity of meaningful membership. So let me punt on that because we're going to get to that, and that's a huge point. Um, and so thank you for bringing that up. That's a really good point. Um, all right, any other, any other questions? Sean, in the back. What are certain marks or, or ways to tell what true repentance looks like, I guess? That's a great question. What are, what are certain marks of what true repentance looks like? Um, I think that... Um, do I, do I, am I grieved over my sin? So I love this quote by William Arnaud, this old British theologian back in the 1800s. He was a contemporary of Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, had an awesome beard. And he said, you guys hear me quote it sort of off, sort of 
paraphrase it a lot. He said, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one doesn't have sin and the other does have sin, but that the Christian is taking God's side against his sin, against a dreaded God. And so the first thing I think is, a, is grieving over our sin. But it can't just be grieving over our sin because 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about how we can be deceived about our own grieving. So in 2 Corinthians 7, it contrasts, um, it says in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So you see there that there's a possibility that we can sort of trick ourselves into thinking that we're sorry about our sin when maybe what we're sorry about is the fact that we've been caught in our sin or that our sin is somehow, you know, robbing us from some thing that we really want or whatever. So there needs to be this sorrow, repentance. But then as John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, he says that this repentance must, to some degree, bear fruit. And I think that the bearing of fruit is uh, confession in community. It's, it's repentance that goes beyond just your own sort of internal self. It's coming into the light. And it is to some degree over the course of time, and I want to have a lot of grace for this, experiencing some fruit of growth and victory over that sin or thing that is, is plaguing you. So that's just my kind of off the top of my head quick thing, just kind of things that I want to diagnose my own soul of as I think about how do you know if my repentance is true? Do I sorrow over my sin? Do I long for the things of God? And then is there movement? Is my repentance causing movement in me towards God and his community in the practical means of grace, of confession, openness, vulnerability, repentance publicly to people that um, I know to be believers in Jesus? Yeah. Good question. Matthew Perlazny. Would you say... Um it's just kind of a tangent of him writing to unbelievers because it seems like the rest of the book is not to unbelievers because he actually mentions enlightened in chapter 10. Yeah. Um, well, all throughout, uh, that's a great question. All throughout Hebrews, I think he kind of goes, he, there's, there's warning passages all throughout Hebrews. And I think that one of the things that he has in the back of his mind is that he is preaching to a congregation who he is thinking is mostly made up of Christians, that he sees a lot of evidence, but he is preaching to people that he is assuming that there will always be unbelievers there or people that are maybe, they have a false sense of security. And by the way, that's the way we preach here every Sunday as well. I think, I am assuming, I remember one of the first times we kind of um, moved into this building. Somebody that I knew to be a Christian came up to me and they're like, Brad, really, do you think, I mean, do you think that there are people in this room who, th- that are like cultural Christians that are self-deceived? And I was like, yes! Yes! Every Sunday! There are a bunch, and so I think that um, even in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, he, 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 right after this, he'll start talking about, but I'm, I'm confident of better things concerning you. You know, things that accompany salvation. That's verse 9, actually. So I think he's got this cate- these two categories in his mind where generally he's addressing the church, but he is assuming that there will always be unregenerate people who think that are regenerate amongst the people of God. And I think that's the way every gospel preacher should preach uh, because obviously that's the way the Bible preaches. Great question. So I don't think he's like going like back and forth, shifting out of categories, you know. I think he's like, I think he's like throwing Holy Ghost spaghetti up against the wall and he's letting whatever the Lord deems to stick, stick. You know, that was a terrible analogy. I don't know what, but you know what I'm saying? He's not, I don't think in his mind he's going, he's, he's, he's throwing the word out just like the parable of the sower on the other side and he's saying the word will do its work. It's like Martin Luther said in the Protestant Reformation. He said, he said, all I did was, was teach, write, and preach the word of God. And then I drank beer with my friend Philip in the taverns, and the word of God did it all. It's what pulled down the papacy in the Roman Empire. The word did it all. And I think the writer of Hebrews is just throwing out the word and saying the word's going to do what it's going to do. And the word is always fighting a multiple battle war. 
to sanctify Christians and to draw unbelievers to faith and to condemn unbelievers rightly in their sin? Yeah, good question. Any other? Any other? Yeah. Can't see. Oh, Brooks. Brooks, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you're going first. Yeah. You got it. We're going to microphone you. Oh, when it says to restore them again to repentance, I feel like the verse really makes it sound like it is the repentance necessary because it says they are once again crucifying the Son of God. Yeah. So it makes it sound like whatever they're losing is what they need back. Yes. So what is going on, and I was going to get to that as well, what's going on since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt? I think what's happening there is that you have these people who've been enlightened, who've tasted, who've shared, who have one sense given sort of public agreement to Christ. And remember the context of people that say, okay, we're kind of with this, and now they seem to be part of us, but now they're not part of us. And now, to turn back from him when you know the writer is wanting to warn them so severely that what they're doing is that they are, they're in a sense, because they have this knowledge, he's wanting to warn them that they're like blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that, that, they're, that they are not like somebody who's ignorant, who's not innocent in their ignorance, but they're just ignorant. They're not ignorant And they are willfully rebelling against God. And the writer wants to write to them with a much greater degree of severity. And he's saying, it's as if you were crucifying Jesus again by holding him up to contempt. I think that's what's happening. I think it's it's the writer of Hebrews wanting to just give a severe warning that you, even more than somebody who's just ignorant and is walking away in unbelief, have no excuse because of in some, in some, sense, some sense you have shared. It's kind of like 1 John 2, 19, um, Brooks, where he says, where the, put it up, 1 John 2, 19. I think we have it on there. Adam, if you could just put that up there um, or not. Is there anybody back there? Okay. So John writes, speaking of people that fell away, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they are all not of us. So there seemed to be those, and then they walked away. And so that, that's like they are deserving of a more severe rebuke than just the ignorant person. Not that the ignorant person is innocent, but these people who seem to, it's like they're crucifying Jesus all over again. That's how severe it seems to the writer of Hebrews. Well, when you say it's to warn us not to be that, those types of people. Mm-hmm. I might just need to wait for the Wednesday that we're going to talk about this. But you can't change the type of soil you are. Well, so, okay, but now we're getting into, I understand, what you, I understand the road you're going down. But I think that, I think that, look, you, you and I have had lots of conversations about the sovereignty of God. I, so um, know that here, what we, we I, I'm going to say two things that are going to drive philosophers crazy. I think tomorrow is absolutely certain and etched in time. Uh, Isaiah 46, God says, I know the, I declare the end from the beginning. I think that tomorrow is foreordained. I think that, like, I, I agree with the Belgic Confession of Faith in ch- paragraph 14 on the Doctrine of Providence that says that nothing happens apart from the wise counsel of God. Everything is set from God's perspective. And I think that is necessary because he's God. He has an exhaustive sense of the future. He's not reacting. It's etched in time. He's outside of time. But from my perspective, tomorrow is still in the future, and I must make a willing decision. So the end, the end is my security if I'm truly a Christian, okay? Mm-hmm. If I'm truly a Christian. And the means by which God gets me to the end is not that he conks me over the head with a baseball bat and says, you know, duck, duck, damned, duck, duck, saved, Brad saved, he's going to get to the end. 
And I, no, I'm, I wasn't trying to be funny. I'm really, I'm, I'm, maybe it was funny, but oh, I'm sorry. But the, the, never separate the end, which is God's sovereign decree of everything that is past, present, and future from the means by which we get there. And so the way God gets me to his guaranteed end is my necessary heeding his warning, cultivating my, the soil of my heart. This is sancti- salvation. This is sanctification. This is me working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. And I am comfortable with the tension between those two, knowing that I can't separate the two. And one of the reasons I think we need to read Hebrews, even if we're Christians, and be chastened by it, is that's the way that God yells to us, stay out of the road. Is it hard to put those two things together? Yes. But I think we see them in Scripture. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll just, in, we'll just, we'll just agree to let yeah. that be the word. I'll just pray about it. Okay. Stephen, you had a question as well. Yeah. And, and let me just encourage Brooke. Brooke, if we could, if we can compartmentalize this and explain it all, that'd be a scary place to be, right? Because then we could look at God. Then it'd just be visiting the zoo. Oh, look at the monkey in that exhibit. Oh, look at the gorilla over there. I mean, God cannot be examined. His ways are higher than our ways. Romans 11, his ways are past finding out. So I'm thankful that we, that these things cause our head to go, ah, those things seem incompatible. But they are compatible in the mind of God. Stephen. All right, so if this is a repentance that's speaking, you know, of unbelievers who have, been who have claimed Christ and they do fall away from that. Yeah. Does that mean that someone who is in that situation cannot be restored to true repentance? Yeah, I I think I think that's the severity of what's going on there in six. I think he's speaking ultimately of people. I think this is just a I think this is from God's perspective of what, is, what happens in these people's lives. I think this ultimately is speaking of the unpardonable sin of unbelief. And I think that there, I think he's just describing people that are amongst those who reject God. But is there a category of people who consistently resist God and reject God and reject God and reject God for years? And then God overpowers them in his irresistible grace and opens up their heart? Yes. I mean, to some sense, we, we all reject God until that time when he opens up our, 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 our minds and our hearts to believe. So I, I think that Hebrews 6 is just basically a description of the two different types of people in the world, those whom God saves and those whom reject God. Does that make sense? Kind of, sort of? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk a little. Later. Yeah. So I, I think that th- this is describing people who are ultimately, who ultimately reject God. But what's going on in Hebrews 6 is it's describing a particular group of people that seem to be Christians for a while, and they, they walk away from him, and there seems to just be a stiffer rebuke for them. That's not to say that the guy on the island is innocent because we are all dead in our sins. But there's a stiffer rebuke for people who seem like they are following Jesus and they reject him. Yeah. So. Who's talking? It's me. It's John. Okay, hey, John. You said, you said these Lord, were hard. Lord, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> you said these were going to be hard questions. Yeah, so this yeah. is just yeah. run a little while and just try to bear with me. I, I have a different different um, vantage point from this. And um, I say that to say that I think everything that we talked about tonight is true. I just think that we are looking at what we struggle with as, as a church and as a people in a scripture that was actually meant for a bunch of Hebrews. So what I mean by that is, if you look at chapter 5 and some of the preceding things that came before, what they are struggling with, I think, is this whole thing of a high priest and the day of atonement. 
which is a yearly sacrifice. And they became Christians, and they see all their friends going, you know, doing this sacrifice over and over again, and some of them are thinking, hey, we only did this once, and maybe we need, you know, we sinned after this, and maybe we need to do this again. And in chapter 5, he's talking about the high priest, Machesildek, and he is saying that he is, he has given us eternal salvation. And he stands before God forever to provide that for us. And then he said, you know, you guys should have been teachers of this. And, you're, and, and, it, and we've got many things to say about him. But you, you're, when you should be teachers, you have a need again that somebody teach you. You're struggling with this. And in, in chapter 6, he says, therefore, leaving this, the the foundation, let's move on. But, and when he, I think when he's saying that if we try to lay again that foundation of repentance to dead works, we are trying to, when we sin, we're trying to like treat Jesus as a yearly sacrifice. That is the wrong way to think about this. That it can't be offered again. It was only offered one time. You can't do it again. If you try to do it again, it's like putting him to open shame. Move on from that. I, I think what he's really saying is the salvation you were purchased with is eternal. It's not even possible to offer him again. So stop doing it, the people that are doing it, and move on. And I think what he said in... The, in um, verse 8, um, where he says he, that he is persuaded of better things of you and of salvation, though we thus speak. He's basically saying, I'm, I was speaking hypothetically. It's not really like, it, it, there's no way you could put Jesus to open shame. And, or uh, let me back up. There's no way you can offer him again. He's, he's only offered one time. Stop doing what you're doing and move on to your Christian walk. And he said, God is not unfaithful. He remembers all the good works that you did and how you suffered loss. And, you know, he is not holding your sin against you anymore. Just walk with Christ and don't turn back and don't Mm. try to offer him again because it's a worthless exercise that uh, you should put behind you forever. I think that's what he's trying to say. I think that's right on, John. I think that's very powerful. And I think that really jives with what he says in Hebrews 7, where he says, where he's contrasting the sacrificial system in Leviticus, and he's saying Jesus has been offered once and for all. So, yeah, that was excellent. That was excellent. One more thought, and then we're going to finish up. Yeah, Bob. Thank you, John. That was really, really good. Um, Jeff, I don't know if I'm, what I'm catching from her, her statement was wrong, just disregard, but one of the things I had, that the sledgehammer of God that is Paul Washer, kind of helped out with his way all the hard things he always says one of the things he said he said if you are worried and stressing over the type of soil you are the evidence is in the stressing of what the type of soil you actually are because mm-hmm. those who aren't aren't worried about it yep. they don't care if, I you, think are, if yep. you are worried about it there's your answer i think that's generally true yeah amen thank you bob Okay, let me read John chapter 6, just to to balance this out, just to give us some um, assurance here, because I think these, we want to read the Bible, we want to let the Bible as a whole interpret the Bible. So, one, we talked about the the words there in Hebrews 6, two, we talked about parallels in Mark, and then three, just let the rest of the, and there's many more, we won't read all of these, but just there's a mountain of scriptures that speak to the assurance of salvation for Christians. Jesus says in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then a couple chapters over in John 10, verse 27. 
Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it through to completion until that day. And then, of course, I referred to it earlier when I was talking to Joe, Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then verses 29 and 30 are what theologians have historically called the golden chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then notice the tenses of verse 30. And those whom he predestined, past tense, he also called, past tense. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. So that's God looking at us in a future sense of our glorification, which he sees as past tense. Four pastoral reflections, and then we'll be done, and I'll hang around and answer any questions that you might have afterwards. The ground of Christian assurance. Um, We've said this often here, that remember that we are not saved by the strength of our faith, as many writers have put over the years, but we are saved by the strength, we we are not, I'm sorry, let me start, try that again. We are not saved by the strength of our faith, meaning how strong am I, how good am I feeling, but we're saved by the strength of the object of our faith, which is Jesus. If you have two, think of, think of a lake in Minnesota that's frozen over, and you have one guy that's never been on the ice, because he's from Florida, and the other guy grew up in Minnesota, and he walks out on the frozen lake in January, and he's like, dude, chill. And the guy from Florida is like, oh my gosh, what in the world's going on, man? Well, both of them are equally safe. The guy from Minnesota is more confident. Homeboy from Boca Raton, his knees are knocking. But they're, they're both equally secure, not because of their own confidence in and of themselves, but because of the strength of our faith. And that's the way it is with Jesus. There will be times when we are weak in our knees. The necessity of repentance that bears fruit, we talked about this. We cannot say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm safe without any fruit, without any... This gets to Sean's question about pursuing God and, and um, bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance and not just having this worldly sorrow where we continue in sin forever. It doesn't mean that Christians won't stumble in many ways. Of course they will. That is true of all of our lives. He who says he has no sin is a liar, the Bible says. Number three, the necessity of church community and meaningful membership as a means of protecting, preserving grace. And this gets to Paul's question. So in 1 Corinthians 5, there's this man who is sinning, as Paul summarized for us, who's having an illicit relationship with his father's wife. And as a means of grace to this man, Paul tells the Corinthian church, put this man out of the church. Well, if there's something to be put out of, there must be something to be put into. Because although the Bible doesn't say be members together of a local church, that seems to be implied. Because they had some sort of relationship where they recognized that we're together, we're in community here, we're all believing in Jesus, and we're sort of affirming one another's right standing with God. And this one guy is so sinning against God and so living a life contrary to what the scripture says the Christian life is about. Paul says, you Christian church, say to this man, you're no longer a part of us. Why? In the hopes that the Lord may use that severity as a kind of smelling salt underneath his nostrils to wake him up so that he will come to true repentance. Or wake up and come back from his sin, whatever the case. I mean, who wants to, at that moment, we don't care whether this guy, we just want him to come back to the Lord, whether he was truly a Christian or whether he just needs to to come to Christ for the first time. We want him to turn from his sin and run to Jesus. And the mechanism that God gives is life in the local church where we sort of have a committed relationship with one another. Not just not anybody knowing you. I know I'm talking to the Wednesday night crowds. You're like, yeah, Brad, we get it. But encourage people. And brothers and sisters or people that would consider themselves Christians that you know that they need to be part of a local church. That's one of the ways that God keeps us. 
And then finally, uh, just help for anxious souls. The Bible is full of saints that are broken. Abraham, who was this weak man who offered up his wife twice to a foreign king because he was not trusting in the promises of God. And then in Romans, when the writer of Romans, Paul, is describing Abraham in the Old Testament, the writer of Romans, Paul, says, Abraham did not waver concerning his faith. And I'm like, wait wait a minute. Actually, he did waver, (laughs) it seems like to me. I mean, he offered up Sarah twice to some pagan king. She's not my wife. She's my sister, which is kind of a half-truth, but you can take her. And then the king was like, what? Come to find out she's not your sister. She's your wife, and there's this God. He's going to kill me. Why would you do this to me? And then Paul says in Romans hundreds of years later that Abraham didn't waver in his faith. Do you see how positively God sees weak people? He's good to his people. He's gracious to his children. He doesn't cast out the anxious soul. He's he's good to them. And then my favorite Puritan, I end with this quote, Richard Sibb says in his little book, The Bruised Reed. And if you're the type of person that struggles with just sin and the state of your own soul, I suggest you go to Amazon and buy this little book. It's called The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, written back in the 1600s. My favorite line in that book, he says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Praise God. Praise God. All right, let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. I'll hang around if you want to chop it up some more. Uh, Lord, um, we want to be people that rightly hear your word and respond to it. If there are any in this room who do not know you, I pray that this would not just be some clinical thing that they would analyze from afar, but even by your Holy Spirit and your sovereign grace, prick their hearts and draw them to faith in Jesus. Even right now, Lord, may they turn away from sin and may they put their hope in you. They need help and more discussion, Lord. I pray that they would seek out somebody that they know to be a Christian and that today would be the beginning of you drawing them to yourself or even right now, Lord, tonight, let them uh, turn from their sin and trust in you. Lord, if there's somebody in this room who is uh, trapped in sin, I pray that this passage would be used as a fatherly warning, that you would be yelling at them from the house, come back from that dangerous road that even our time together tonight might serve as a means of preserving grace for them. Lord, I thank you for uh, John's words to us as he was sharing with us about what's going on in Hebrews and how the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus has died once and for all. And for us to walk away from him and just keep coming back would be so unnecessary that He's died once and for all. And he is able to save to the uttermost. Hebrews 7. So may we revel in that. May we rest in that. May your people find joy and assurance. And may it put steel in our spines as we fight sin in a wicked world. And may this beautiful truth and the severity of it draw unbelievers to you. And we pray all of this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of any unbelievers. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.